if we have a situation where our migration law and our response more broadly to exploitation says, well, if you're an unlawful migrant, we're not really going to respond. In fact, what happens is our, our migration system and our regulation process can sustain exploitation. Welcome to the Monash Arts Researchers Podcast. My name is Marie Seagrave and I'm Associate Professor in Criminology. I'm also a researcher with the Border Crossing Observatory. That's one of the groups that I work with, one of the research groups. And my work in criminology and at the Border Crossing Observatory is basically focused on temporary migration um, and border control and the kinds of, the ways in which we, I guess, define different people as problem migrants or not and, and, and I guess the ways in which the consequences of, of border control um, impact people differently. The Border Crossing Observatory that started in 2010 and um, two of my colleagues, Professor Sharon Pickering and Associate Professor Leanne Weber founded it. All three of us work on border related research. Our work is, is essentially about looking at Australia's response, which has been particularly uh, a securitised kind of response in the last decade in terms of the ways in which we police the borders, in terms of our water borders, how we police the seas effectively, but also what we do at airports, which is often quite hidden. So it came about from that, but also we are a part of a network of academics. We're linked to Border Criminologies, which is based at Oxford, and researchers who are based at Oslo, and that has been um, a really strong um, collaboration with different researchers there. And at various times we've worked and um, undertaken research with Leverhumen and things like that. So that's who we are, and we've slowly expanded. The Border Deaths database was started by Leanne and Sharon and that was at a time in Australia where there were a lot of people dying at sea trying to get to Australia. So um, refugees trying to get here to claim asylum essentially. But there was no actual accounting for how, how often that was happening and the number of people this was happening to. There's no Australian uh, body that that takes responsibility for counting such such things. So there are a number of different organisations around the world that do something similar in that they try to count people who are trying to cross borders and who die in that process. Um, and so this was the first time that someone had said that, 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 that we should do that in Australia. So Leanne and Sharon started that and they wrote a book about it. Um, but the database continues. There's been shifts, of course, in terms of Australian policy. So two big shifts. One has been the turn back policy. So what that means is people could still be dying because they're trying to leave, for example, Indonesia, but they're not getting as far. Um, the other consequence is that, or the other thing that has occurred is that so much information in this space um, is no longer Made, made, made public at all. So, you know, when, when uh, the Abbott government came into power, you know, in that first period of, of power, nothing was reported. So even if there were media reports, for example, about a boat capsizing, 
there would be no confirming or denying of that information. They just would refuse to even engage with that information. So partly it was about capturing a quantitative number. How often is this happening? Where is it happening and how? Most of the, most of the deaths that, we, that are included in the database are deaths at sea, but not all of them are deaths at sea. So we include um, deaths uh, in immigration detention centres. Um, and also deaths on return to country of origin uh, after deportation. So there's a, it, it has a uh, broad definition, I guess, in terms of um, how we define that. But importantly, the database, which you can access on our website, but also on, uh, online with SBS, one of the most important things, and I think perhaps the um, central element of, of the Border Deaths database is it isn't just numbers. So there is a lot of, as much information as can be provided around who these people were and I think that's, that's really critical. It's really important as researchers and as a community to know the numbers but it's also really critical to recognise the people and the dignity of people in, in dying in that, in that, in that context. I think it raises questions about how do, how do we measure success if people are dying in that process, at what point do we make anybody accountable for that death? So it raises questions around accountability um, and in many ways you know, a humanitarian response um, doesn't start by arguing about who's responsible, you know, at sea is this our, Australia's responsibility or Indonesia's really um, I guess a starting point would be that we would ideally not have people dying in this kind of context trying to flee one situation to get to another. I think in part it is about trying to to create change and that you know the ability for it to do that is limited on its own. Now the, the border deaths database that we have is expanding because we've partner with IOM, the International Organisation for Migration, to look at deaths across Southeast Asia um, and that includes uh, information about missing persons and things like that. So people who've gone missing and no one knows where they are, starting to build a much more expanded database across the region about movement across the region. And those, those sorts of patterns in our region and in other regions also allow us to recognise that often you know, a solution such as Australia's solution around turning back the boats and having offshore detention looks like there is no impact for Australia, but there's huge impact for people who are left stranded in Indonesia who are irregular migrants who have nowhere to go um, and, and in other places. So there are really significant consequences. So it's partly about that as well. We've just updated uh, a book we wrote um, nearly 10 years ago looking at the response in Thailand, Serbia and Australia. We've just got a new book coming out about that. Myself, Sanya Milovojevic and Sharon, which really looks at the response to trafficking in all three nations. And one of the things that it says, one of the things that we've found is the consistency of, across all of those nations, the role of the border as having 
a huge influence on the extent to which victimisation is recognised um, and the limitations that we put on how we respond to victimisation. In many ways there's a, often a suspicion that someone who is unlawfully in the country who's been or working unlawfully, there's always this, this underlying suspicion that maybe they're claiming this in order to get away with, you know, the, the offence that they've that they've um, been involved with, you know, with their migration-related offence. And that's quite that's quite consistent that, that those issues come to the fore. They come to the fore in different kinds of ways. Um, but they consistently come up that there is a suspicion of some women, for example. Um, and the flip side of it is that when the, the response to trafficking tends to be around saying we've got this many months while the criminal justice process goes through, um, we'll support you but at the end of that we'll give you no guarantee of any ongoing support and most of you have to go home. So the border looms large really because you don't belong here is the message. You don't belong and for our response to trafficking to finish for most people it means you have to go home. So we have this limitation around how we respond which is defined by migration status first and foremost um, and, and the justification for that is well if we didn't do that people would just make it up. There'll be floodgates. That's why consistently hear that there would be floodgates that's what would happen everyone would claim that they were a victim um, and, and that's that's a problem I think the other side of it is in all the consistent thing with responding to trafficking and even modern slavery is that we respond in a way that's focused on criminal justice we focus on uh, a prosecution we focus on the victim and what's really consistent is that we rarely recognise victims as labourers. We don't say, this person came to work and they were cheated out of that work, they were forced to work in conditions that were terrible, they ought to be remunerated because they were never paid properly and they ought to be compensated. That's not the first response. We don't recognise them as workers. We say, oh, let us offer you a welfare kind of support. Some of you might be able to work, some of you might not be able to work while you're in our victim support system. Uh, you can see a psychologist um, and uh, and we'll see if we can prosecute a case. So prosecuting a case is a, a state-driven priority. Not that many victims see justice through the criminal justice system as their number one priority because they still haven't been paid, they've still endured this particular experience and most of them are on the move and want to work and make money and a lot of them are in debt so, so none of that is driven by a recognition of the person and their situation it's really driven by our assumption that the, to end trafficking we need to identify criminals and uh, prosecute them but if we have a situation where our migration law and our response more broadly to exploitation says, well, if you're an unlawful migrant, we're not really going to respond. In fact, what happens is our, our migration system and our regulation process can sustain exploitation. It allows it to keep occurring. But if you focus on criminal justice, you never look at that. So you can see the ways in which, in fact, our, the way that we've framed border control and the regulation of migration can sustain these situations that people, some people can't travel easily, 
Some people can't come to Australia and work very easily, but they want to and they do, <laughs> they still do. So if, if we don't want to talk about that, that's fine, but we're never going to address the exploitation that's occurring just by criminalising it. And clearly in Australia we don't have much success with criminalising and prosecuting. So, so that's quite critical. We've had a huge change in Australia in terms of recognising migrant labour exploitation as a problem as a result of uh, things like uh, the 7-Eleven case where international students have been exploited. Um, we've also identified things like uh, 457 visas and exploitation related to that to skilled workers. But what we've seen is a response led now by the Migrant Workers Task Force in, to one extent with Alan Fowles saying that immigration and fair work will work together but if someone never had work rights in Australia they cannot guarantee them any protection if they come forward. So there's no, absolutely no, no reason to come forward. So I think, I think the challenge in this space is that the commitment to addressing exploitation isn't complete and the consequence of that is that people who are already in a situation where they can be exploited will continue to be exploited because they want to work. Um, people want them to be working for them um, and the likelihood, while there's increasing fines and things like that, the likelihood of being caught is quite, is actually quite limited. It's very difficult. Australia is a very big country. People move through these jobs very quickly. Um, so. So, you know, the, the, the issue is that we don't actually address exploitation first and, first and foremost. If that was the priority, we could let go of migration status mattering. In terms of trafficking, um, we see the same thing. So, at the lower end of exploitation where people aren't being paid properly, where there are other kinds of workplace breaches, that's essentially the sticking point. But if you think of it as a continuum, the more extreme version of that is when you can demonstrate um, debt bondage or other kinds of exploitation that have occurred. Most, most of the people I've, I've spoken to, and I this is a very difficult group to access, so I'm, uh, this report I'm about to release, that's based on interviews with about 50 people. Nearly all of, all of them um, are, are really just coming because they've been told, they either know friends or family who are in Australia making money or have come back. So in Australia there's the opportunity to make money more quickly, the Australian dollar is worth much more than their own money so they can work equally as hard and get, make more money. So um, and, and or there are people, depending on where, where my participants have come from, I would say in some, in some nations there are actually active recruiters and agents who organise for them to come to Australia, who advertise that you can go to Australia and get work. They put them on a tourist visa. People don't really seem to be across necessarily their visa. 
um, and, they, and they come with the intention of working. So there's some quite different experiences in, in, that, in that sense. But the people, most of the people I speak to are in situations where they have families and they see this as an opportunity to make money. Um, and don't come with the intention of staying forever. Their families are at home, they're sending as much money as they can home. Um, most of the people I've spoken to don't have a, a firm sense of when they'll go home though. Um, and you know it's interesting because you might assume, make assumptions about who, who these people are but um, you know I've spoken to people who are in their 20s but also you know women in their 50s and 60s who've come who've retired really they've finished working at home and they've come now um, because it's an opportunity. There are a lot of overstays in Australia so there are a lot of UK, European backpackers who just overstayed their visa, who would be working also unlawfully. You know, they might be working in a cafe and serve you a coffee. You know, you don't really know. People aren't necessarily checking up on, on, um, on, on their migration status in the way they ought to be, especially in, in different kinds of industries where, where labour moves quite quickly. It's quite fluid, I guess. Um, but most of the attention on um, identifying and removing people who are working tends to be um, people from within the region. But also the kinds of situations that people I've spoken to have been in are situations where they aren't paid. A contractor says, oh, I'll pay you in two weeks, I'll pay you in two weeks, I'll pay you. They never pay them. But they leave. They're very mobile. They're they tend to be well connected to other people. You, you start to get to know other people, generally often of the same nationality, I find, and they share information by Facebook or WhatsApp. They're various groups, so they know, they follow work, they share information about good contractors or bad contractors. And there are many complicated issues around accommodation and um, transport even, things that we don't really think about in terms of exploitation, but people, and this also happens to, to working holiday makers, so backpackers really, being promised work, they go somewhere, there's no work there but they've got to pay accommodation, they've got no income, and so they rack up a significant debt. Then they're in a situation where they've got to pay that debt back and then at times there are there are various stories about the, what, what happens in those situations, that people end up you know, working at, at a hostel or something for a long time, or just that they end up owing a lot of money to a contractor who lends them that money. And the, the politics around this is not, um, not easy to negotiate in a way because when unlawful workers are identified, there's always the, there's often a ministerial statement that says, yes, they've taken Australian jobs. Um, and I, I think that's really simplistic. Um, you know, a lot of the employers I speak to don't, would say they don't want Australians to work for them because they're lazy. Some people would say, that, that, and that's because they're doing the kind of work that is very intense, um, that's very hard labour. 
and not many, you know, locally, regionally, there's not many people who want to come and do that. When people are placed into that work who are Australian, their experience has been, for example, that person's on welfare, they're going to earn almost as much on welfare. Why would they come? And they don't, and they, you know, and they have bad experiences where people purposely sabotage that work placement. So they'll destroy something in order that they have to be removed. And so that, you know, that experience has taught employees in that situation, you know, Australians are not welcome because they don't want to work. Um, and sometimes people put it to me, well, that's because they don't pay them as well either. And I think that's a bit, that's not quite true. The picture isn't quite that simple because there are many, there seem to be a number of employees who do pay correctly. It's contractors and subcontractors who take a cut and a cut and a cut. And then they say your accommodation, you know, for you to share that room with three other people in a, in a, um, in a, you know, house in the middle of nowhere is, you know, hundred dollars a week, you know, and so they're making this huge profit just from this, you know, basic accommodation. So that kind of thing is where money, money can be made. So I don't think it's as simple as employers, um, employers not paying. Some employers don't pay well, um, but, but that's not always true, but they're not necessarily in a position where they can easily follow up or have the time, even though it is requisite that they're supposed to know who, how someone's been paid. But they pay um, super and everything on top of what they've paid, so they would think they're paying the right way. But it's, it's what's happening down the line. We did a big project on detention and deportation and I spent a lot of time in immigration detention here at Maribyrnong and I spoke to, um, I spoke to some, uh, some workers there and um, you know I spoke to a guy who'd been here for seven, seven years and he worked as a panel beater and his, his employer had no, his boss had no idea uh, he wasn't supposed to be working. I mean, he drove a company car. He got picked up by um, Victoria Police for, I can't remember, some reason. And then they looked at his, they happened to ask him about his immigration. Somehow they asked him about immigration, detained him and said, we'll have to get immigration in. And so he's on his way to work on a Monday morning and he ended up that afternoon, he was at Maribyrnong. And, but... You know, he said to me, his family he had kids, young kids, his wife and his kids, they came out every year at Christmas for a holiday and they had, had holidays. I mean, then I think, like, it's, it's not like people are scurrying around like rats or mice trying to hide from the light, you know? I think people do live, um, you wouldn't really know. Um, and. And when you're working in this kind of, when they're gentle, well, I mean, that was skilled work really, but um, kind of low skilled work that can be short term, a temporary job, casual kind of stuff. You know, while on the one hand, employers are supposed to be doing, you know, meeting all these regulations. On the other hand, we know they don't. The cash economy is huge and the cash economy benefits many people. It's not just migrant workers or unlawful migrant workers who are accessing that. Even on these, even in this work, 
there's also of course you know pensioners who are working who've worked in particular industries all their life and they're getting the pension but they're also working cash in hand for people because they're good workers and um, they're also benefiting but that the consequence for them isn't going to be removal <laughs> that kind of thing yeah I also do work on, um, at the moment, on temporary migration and family violence. And what, you know, one of the things I'm struck by is that even in that space, the response in a way is the same, which is that women who don't have permanent residency in Australia, if, they, if they're on a pathway to permanent residency, which means they're on a partner visa, that will allow them to access permanent residency after two years, basically. If they separate from their partner because of family violence, they still have to go through these significant hurdles to prove the genuine relationship and all these other things and, and family, that family violence occurred in order to access permanent residency. And I, I would say that what, what's consistent here is that the first, the first response of our, of our policy, the way we construct that, that aspect of migration law is to say, we want to make sure you're telling the truth before we respond to your situation of exploitation, whatever that is, or abuse. In the family violence space, we see changes like changes to sponsorship so some sponsors now won't be eligible to become sponsors and that is justified by explaining well that will protect women but in fact many women are already in situations of family violence by the time they're applying for a partner visa uh, and and or they they know about their what kind of person their partner is the violence doesn't necessarily start once you've applied for a partner visa um, which means they will never access permanent residency that way. So there are huge complications for that. And I think, um, so I think they're some of the biggest challenges actually, is, is trying to bring that to the fore. I think the solution to that is really simple because most women who apply, and it's uh, mostly women the work I'm doing, um, are successful, 75% are successful in the administrative decision and then a number of those the number who appeal is not uh, I can't quantify but this is based on data from 300 cases but the um, number who then appeal anecdotally from people who support people to appeal those decisions have the decision overturned which means they're successful so that would suggest that most people who apply are genuine um, so we should just say, put them straight away, tr treat them immediately as someone in situation family violence with permanent residency and wait for that to be approved. Because the problem is that you can't access financial support, you can't access housing. So there are limitations on what you can do. So you've got service providers trying to support them, but they can't be supported in the same way as a, an Australian citizen can, because there's limitations on terms of, in terms of what they can access. So it wouldn't cost a lot, it would be hugely symbolic, but also have consequence for you know, a number of women, um, hundreds of women in Australia to say, 
in the first instance, yes, we'll keep processing this. It may be that you're, it, it isn't approved, but you're allowed to essentially access everything now, yeah, once you've made that submission. So um, that wouldn't take a lot to do that. moment ideally it would just be fantastic to have some recognition of a shift in the way we recognize people who are unlawful and that's one of the biggest challenges I face is trying to convince um, people making decisions in this area that that matters um, the second is probably to recognize exploitation as a continuum so at the moment there's very much a siloing of it's either trafficking a trafficking offense and that's a federal issue and attorney generals deal with that, they lead the response to that, or it's a lesser issue of migrant work exploitation and that's for fair work and other bodies to deal with. The, you know, the, the there is a continuum of exploitation, it's never that clear cut and to think that they're not related is a problem so we need to recognise the breadth of exploitation that occurs. It would be fantastic to get to a point where Fair Work and the Department of Immigration uh, have, a, have a firewall so Fair Work never have to tell immigration about anyone's immigration status. That would be an amazing outcome. That would be one clear step, which is something that happens in the US. It's, it's absolutely possible to do that. Um, that would be a signal that exploitation was being addressed um, first and foremost.